join me in prayer. Father, we ask now that as we come to hear your word, you would help us to be humble before you. That I myself, that any here, despite what we've been through this week, what has happened to us, what sins we have committed, that you would, by your Spirit, help us have soft hearts to receive your word. Help us by your Spirit have ears to hear, eyes to see what is true about the world, about you, and about ourselves. That we might rightly know you, trust Christ, and be forgiven of sin. Father, in all the ways that we need to be encouraged in faith, to continue believing old things, help us be encouraged. In all the ways that we need to be convicted, to repent, to turn, to forsake sin, and make no provision for the flesh, would you help us do that? Would you help this, your word, help us this week glorify your name for our joy and your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were in the book of Job and we're going to be covering a pretty large section of the book of Job today. Chapter 27, chapters 29, 30, and 31 all together, be referencing them, looking at them as a whole. The title for this morning's sermon is, I Hold Fast My Righteousness. I Hold Fast My Righteousness. You could summarize the court battle between Lieutenant Daniel Caffey and Colonel Nathan R. Jessup with this one well-known exchange, I want the truth. What does Colonel Jessup say? You can't handle the truth. Or maybe you remember Bill Clinton's testimony from his impeachment. You could fittingly describe the entire saga of the president's with the president's slimy answer. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. I remember the first case that I was really interested watching on television. I watched live the summer before as a white Ford Bronco drove down the freeway of Los Angeles at 35 miles an hour for two hours. And I remember the one line nearly a year later that seemed to ultimately secure the freedom of O.J. Simpson from his attorney Johnny Cochran. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Here we are at the end of Job. As we get to the end of Job's testimony, I want to make sure that we have a sentence by which we can remember Job's self-defense and one which connects us and Job to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 through 31, Job has been in and is finally here in a debate. He's had to defend himself like an attorney. He's cried out for God to interject. God has been silent. He is in an argument, waiting on the jury, God in this case, to answer. Here is the charge against Job. Job, you're a liar. Job has suffered greatly under the hand of God, and yet Job continues to hold fast to his righteousness, suggesting that he did not do anything to deserve this suffering in his life. We see at the beginning of Job that Job loses everything but his wife and his own life. He loses his, his wealth. He loses his children. He loses his home. He loses his own wealth, his own health. But that was not the main event of the book of Job. That was just the setting. The main event of the book of Job, the action as it were, is the argument between Job and his friends 
chapters 4 through 25. They suggest over and over in different ways the simple worldly thinking that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, they argue that if God is allowing these things to happen in Job's life, then Job very obviously must have sinned very greatly before God. And by the end of their conversation, they end up calling each other stupid and they get sarcastic with each other. But no one budges in the debate in chapters 4 through 31. So as we saw last week, one of three things is going to be decided in the end. Something needs to break. Number one, the friends will realize that God can allow the righteous to suffer. They will realize that they were wrong all along. God actually can somehow in His providence allow righteous people to suffer. Or number two, Job will finally confess his sin and everything will make sense. Bad things happen to bad people. That's what we thought. Or number three, they'll somehow prove that God was wrong for allowing Job to suffer this way even though he was righteous. We're getting close to the moment that the decision is handed to the jury, so to speak. It's time for last statements from the prosecution and the defense. Job, acting as his own defense attorney, has the last word. What is Job's last defense? Summarize Job 27, 1 through 6. As God lives, I hold fast my righteousness. As God lives, I hold fast my righteousness. That's the headline on the evening news. Job gives final defense. Job swears his righteousness by God. And everyone reading the news, everyone reading the Twitter feed has an opinion. Did you see it? Job sealed his fate. He pleads innocence. Oh, but everyone knows he must be really guilty. Oh, I just wish Job would just confess. Oh, do you have any evidence otherwise? Maybe he actually didn't do anything. And friends, let me just get perspective. All of this, Job is setting us up to think about the day on which we stand before God to be judged. So Job is really helping us think about. The Bible tells us that God is the judge of all. It's appointed, Hebrews says, for man to die once and then comes judgment. He is judge, Hebrews says, of the living and of the dead in 2 Timothy. In life and in death, what will be your plea before the Creator? What's the one line that you want to say to God and to your fellow men about the case for your righteousness and your life? Could you, could any of us, borrow Job's line? As God lives, I hold fast my righteousness. Friends, if not, you have to admit God is just for whatever judgment He pronounces on us. Just know that before we give an answer, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If we get what we really deserve from God, God's not just going to give us some traffic. God's not just going to have our taxes get audited. God's not just going to give us cancer. If God were to give us what we deserve because of our sin against Him, He would give us death. And the penal code for crimes in the state of Texas and the federal government, there are levels of punishment for crime. If you speed, you get a ticket. If you get too many tickets, your driver's license may get taken away. No one needs to know how close I got to that and why I know in high school. If you drive drunk, you go to jail. If you commit murder, you could find yourself on death row. What's the wages of sin against God? What is the wage? What is the fitting punishment for sin against a holy God? It can only be death. Sin is treason against God. 
In the beginning, in the garden, we learn that sin is not just kind of messing up. Not just trying your best, but falling short. Sin begins by believing and giving allegiance to Satan rather than God. Sin, going against God's nature and His commandments. Death being the only fitting retribution. The Bible often uses the images of clay when it comes to our rights. What is our right before God? God made the clay live and the clay turned on its maker. So back to the ground it goes. What would be more fitting? Anything less suggests that our sin is not that bad or that God is not that righteous. Just test it and see, friends. You think God seems unjust because His punishment is too strict? in giving sinners the punishment of death from the beginning? Well, wait until you see God let Hitler off. Where do you think if God were to let Osama bin Laden just go without a thought? Or Stalin? Or Vladimir Putin? We might begin to say God is unjust in His mercy. Tested and see, death for sin is just. Job... And his final defense is clinging to his own righteousness. Saying that he has no sin that deserves the suffering that he's experiencing. Job clings to his own righteousness in three different ways. Number one, in the integrity of his mouth. Look in Job chapter 27, verse 4 through 5. Job says, My lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you, his friends who are saying that he is a sinner, to say that you are right till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. Job is firm. You cannot make me say something that is untrue. Job clings to his righteousness. He does not say one thing while another thing is actually true. Number two, he has integrity in his heart. He has integrity in his heart. Job chapter 27 verse 6 I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. True righteousness has no conflict between the statement in the mouth and the conscience in the heart. When Job says with his mouth, I hold fast my righteousness before God, his heart does not say, well, but the other day, when you were at Chick-fil-A, and they forgot to give you the sauce you asked for. Remember that moment, Job? Not perfect righteousness. No, Job says his heart has nothing to add. No reproach in the conscience of his heart. Number three, perhaps most importantly, Job confesses he clings to his righteousness, the integrity and the law and God's command. Job believes that he's right by God. He says what he means. He has a clear conscience in his heart and in his mind. And he believes that he's right in regard to the law and God's command. That he did not sin to deserve this suffering. Look what he says in Job chapter 31 verse 1. And just see that Job spends time chronicling. If that's a word, if I can make that a word. He, he spends time investigating his own sinfulness. And look what he says in Job 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I mean, that is Jesus, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount kind of righteousness. The heart, not just the body. The eyes and the spirit, not just the act. Look at verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant, those who are working for him, and my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me. Look down at verse 16. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. Look down at verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, I thought someone would help me in the gate. Look at verse 29. If I rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. 
Job is systematically working through his life on the commandments of God, justice on the earth, or righteousness towards others, the sinfulness in his own heart. And though Job is not necessarily systematically working through the law of Moses, Job is showing that he is submitting himself to God's standard of righteousness. Not only does Job claim not to have done big bad things and you know, been safe and secure from committing, you know, he just committed little sins. He's been just to the powerless. He's taken on the plot of the helpless. He is just in every way in his eyes before God. And because Job is so convinced about his righteousness, he, to some degree like his friends, is a bit confused about why God would let him suffer. See how in the very end of Job's defense, Job expresses he's a little confused about what's going on. A little might be an exaggeration. But this confusion only makes sense if he continues to hold fast to his righteousness. That's why he's confused. He is convinced about his righteousness, therefore he is confused about why God would let him suffer. He actually has some of the theology of his friends. Look in Job chapter 31, verse 1 through 4. I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion be from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Look what he says in verse 3 and 4. It's going to sound a little bit like his friends. Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? God knows that I'm righteous. And yet here I am experiencing the calamity and the disaster of the unrighteous and the workers of iniquity. He holds fast to his righteousness. He's confused. God, I don't get it. Why? I haven't sinned to deserve this, so why? And Job systematically works through his life to see if there is sin. And he is very much in the same vein of David. who thought he was right, but dared to ask God to show him if he was Wrong. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, of all the questions to ask about life, eternity, and just what matters in our relationship before God with Him as holy judge. Primary question would be what will we say? What could be said about us in a final defense? In the summation of our argument in the court of our justice and our righteousness and what we deserve before God. I want to take some time this morning to wrestle with something. It's the temptation and the wrestle with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The temptation, the desire to want to be able to say in our heart of hearts what Job is saying. I'm right. I'm righteous. There's no sin in me. But friends, if we do not think about our sin like Job, systematically, honestly, vulnerably, humbly, we will find ourselves in self-righteousness. And the gospel will not only be boring to us, it won't save us. I want to take this moment in the book of Job and meditate on this and encourage you to sink these things deep down in your heart. 
that at the climax, the height of Job's defense, he says, as God lives, I hold fast to my righteousness and my heart does not reproach me. Those are big words for a man to say before a holy God. And I'm concerned the Bible reveals that so often we deceive ourselves to think that we can say that. Now, we might not say that theologically. I mean, most of those who have grown up in the church who have read the Bible to some degree, if we were to take a test on paper, would be able to pass that test. Our hearts are deceptive. I want to give us ten observations, ten meditations about self-righteousness. Before we are willing to say something like Job, I hold fast my righteousness as God lives. Work through these ten observations and meditations. Number one, righteousness is not defined by comfort or suffering. By Job's example, we learn that suffering isn't all the, always the consequence in God's sovereignty of unrighteousness. But we also ought to know then that comfort does not always mean God's favor for our righteousness. Feeling good, having no troubles, feeling like God isn't bothering you with any trials or discipline does not mean that God is pleased with you. We think like this. When someone asks us how we are doing, we tend to answer with our feelings and our circumstances. But the wicked often find pleasure in the world and the righteous often find pain. Neither are the ultimate litmus test for righteousness. Just think about what the prophet says, Amos, to the people of Israel. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. That, that could be interpreted like barbecue and ribeye in today's language, just so you know where we're going. Because you didn't think lamb was special. Who eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the soul. The choices of meats who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Israel had fallen apart. And they should be grieving. But they're partying. Are you happy? It's not the same as righteousness. Are you comfortable? It's not the same as righteousness. Paul is actually very glad in 2 Corinthians that he grieved the church with his preaching. Because their grieving led to repentance. Self-righteousness loves to use comfort or suffering as the litmus test for its righteousness. But righteousness is not determined by either comfort or suffering. Number two, self-righteousness hates being examined by God or man. Notice how Job opens himself up to both God and man. He wants to be known. He never flees from his community. Look in Job chapter 13, verse 23. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Job is telling his friends, make me know the transgression and my sin. He wants help. And he, he tells them, if you, if you can see it and you can, you can know it, then, then make known my transgression and my sin. In Job chapter 19, verse 23 to 24, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job's not hiding. Job 31, verse 5 through 6, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance 
and let God know my integrity. Self-righteousness will express itself in self-defensiveness. Kind of a state of the heart where your, your first reaction to every criticism or a brother or sister's attempt to speak truth in love is anger, protection, self-defense, not giving any space for acknowledging that there might be truth. Friends, instead of this, take it to prayer for examination. Take it to prayer for examination. Pastors need to work on this too. I'm in a pastor's group. We meet once a month, once a month and we recently read a book about criticism. And in it, the author stated this. Told this story. The story is told of a friend who approached Alexander White, an able Scottish preacher, with some bad news. He told Pastor White that a preacher who had come to town was severely criticizing one of White's colleagues. White immediately responded with righteous anger, stating that such criticism was unjustified, sinful, and wrong. Then the friend said that he felt compelled to bring even more bad news, telling White that the preacher in town was also criticizing him severely. In response, White showed no anger, but simply asked to be excused for a few moments. A bit later, he returned to his friend and said with great humility, by God's grace, may the critic not be right. The friend said it was obvious that White took the criticism straight to the Lord in prayer, which profoundly impacted his entire demeanor for good. Friends, for truly in righteousness, we'll happily have others investigate our lives and prayerfully take it to the Lord, to your life group, to your one-on-one -on -one discipleship, to your friends, to your parents, children, and fellowship becomes a place where we're gladly known, not a place where we have to creatively hide. Number three, self-righteousness attempts to look good on the outside, even if dead on the inside. Remember that Job confesses that even in his heart, he finds no reproach in himself. Job has made a covenant with his eyes and not only is he not an adulterer, he's not gazed upon a woman. This is part of Jesus' criticism, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Can you imagine going to a restaurant and they bring you a glass? And the outside of the glass is nice and clean, but inside it still has someone else's old coffee from yesterday the remnants of yesterday's milkshake. Is that righteousness? I don't think so. That's a form of self-righteousness, though. Clean on the outside, your heart is filled with reproach. Can you say, I hold fast my righteousness? Only if you're clean on the inside, too. Number four. An indication of self-righteousness is ad hominem argument. Ad hominem arguments. An ad hominem argument is when someone presents you with a claim and you bring the person's character, you add the human into the argument rather than responding to the claim. So, for example, someone says a true statement like this, the Dallas Cowboys are America's team. That's a true statement. I don't know why anyone's laughing. An ad hominem argument, the adding the human to the argument would be, well, what do they know? They're not from Texas. You see, the comeback has nothing to do with the argument itself. It has to do with the person making the argument to distract from the argument. Job's friends accuse him of this. You think that we're stupid. Job, you're making it about the person. Job 18.3 Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Give me back with that hominem argument actually. Make it about the, the other person rather than the truth of whether or not you might be righteous or not. And friends, here's two common forms of ad hominem arguments. One, assume a false narrative. 
you fill in the gaps with a person's life. That person has probably never suffered, so they don't know. That problem person doesn't have an education. Right? They, they, they grew up like me in East Texas. What do they know? That, that, prob- that person probably grew up like this, so therefore what they say, they try to find some narrative that discredits their criticism. We do this all the time. Or sometimes we blame the delivery. When, when someone gives us criticism or tries to speak the truth in love, we don't listen to them. Because they're too harsh or they're too soft or the delivery just wasn't just right. didn't make us feel good. We were camping recently and I had the kids driving around in the truck around uh, the park, which I've just confessed to a, a crime. The camp host not the ranger, not the state park police, not the, you know, um, FBI. The volunteer host stopped me in his golf cart. This is what he said. Put his hands up, stopped me, got my attention. Hey, pal. The ranger will ticket you for having those kids back there. Now, instead of being concerned about the law... And am I breaking the law, which is designed for the safety of my children? You want to know what words stuck with me all day? Hey, pal. 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 Oh, just, oh. Just ate at me. But you know what? He was 100% right. I was breaking the law. I was wrong. So for the rest of the day, when Clint said something, I would just refer to her as pal. Hey, pal. I was getting my frustration out. But he was right. Self-righteousness loves to find someone else's delivery as a distraction from our unrighteousness. Number five, define righteousness by comparing yourself to someone else. Self-righteousness loves to define righteousness by comparing yourself to someone else. It hides by comparison, comparing someone else to yourself. In the account of the Pharisee in the New Testament, one Pharisee even said to God himself, Luke 18 verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The tax collector who would beat his chest and cry out from mercy and who went away justified. Self-righteousness loves to talk about Hitler in illustrations. Job seems never to do this. He doesn't say, you know, Bildad, compared to robbers and thieves and Vladimir Putin, I'm just not really that much of a bad guy, don't you think? Now he opens himself up, he looks at the Lord, he's honest about himself. Define righteousness number six by comparing your good works to your bad works. Self-righteousness always wants you and others to know all your spiritual greatest hits. Just remember all the good things that you're good at. Hey, is there any sin in your life? Yeah, 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 but, 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 think about all the good things that I did. Think about all the good things that I've done. I know I stole gum from the store, but I paid it forward at Starbucks that one time. I know I lied on that report at work, but I gave a homeless guy a dollar. You separated the standard of holiness from the character of God and made your own standard according to your own sinfulness. Job walks through systematically his righteousness. He includes some things like how you're treating the widow in your life. What about the servants who work for you? What about just looking looking at a woman with lust. And that's where he gets his righteousness from. Not by comparing his good works to his bad works. Number seven, self-righteousness likes to deflect by becoming the victim in the scenario. You might think that this is a modern invention, that this is the fruit of relativistic, self-determinative overly therapeutic culture in a generation that's almost a hundred years removed from the era of the world wars. Almost a hundred years from World War II. About 20 years out. 
But the victim mentality has been there from the beginning. From the first moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin, God came to, come, came to hold court in the garden, and Adam's first two words are what? The woman. And when God addresses the woman, her first two words are the serpent. This is every child in the world. Everyone. This is every childish adult as well. Imagine having that on your tombstone. Imagine having that be your last word before God in regards to your righteousness. But they... Would that be the last word that defines your life and your righteousness? But they. Self-righteousness loves to define righteousness behind victimhood. Number eight, self-righteousness will purposefully maintain sin. Self-righteousness will hide, support, protect, and provide for continued secret in the dark sin. And call it righteousness. This is kind of the other side of the, the coin of self-righteousness and the hypocrisy of the inside and the outside. That's not righteousness like God is righteous. God is holy, holy, holy. So Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. Don't provide any forethought for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Paul says to the church in Thessalonica abstain from every form of evil. Self-righteousness will purposefully maintain sin. Paul in his instruction in the New Testament is to flee all forms of sin. Number nine, self-righteousness will hate brothers and sisters. I added this one simply because there's a New Testament book dedicated nearly entirely to this subject. Your love for your brothers and sisters as fruit of your righteousness in Christ. First John, that book, John helping believers make discernments about believers in the church, says this, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's not very different from 1 Corinthians 13. If you have not love, you have nothing. You have all this righteousness. You, you give your life to be burned at the stake and, and you speak in tongues and you do all these amazing things for the Lord, but you don't have love. You don't love one another. Self-righteousness thinks it can be righteous and hate the body. But there is no righteousness that hates your brothers and sisters in Christ or despises them. To use the word Paul uses in Romans 14. One final thought, the tenth, meditation on self-righteousness. The thought, fruit of self-righteousness is that the gospel is boring. Hearing about Jesus is convicting or worse, meh. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, eh. It's not a sign that the gospel has become normal. It's not a sign the gospel has become normal, that we've talked too much about Jesus to water him down, or that we've done the Lord's Supper too often, or that every sermon has the gospel in it, and they keep talking about the same thing. It's not a sign that you've matured. The gospel is boring to you. The gospel becomes boring. It's more likely a sign that we've drifted into some form of self-righteousness, where we don't think we need the gospel. We're not aware. We're not feeling our desperation for the gospel of Christ crucified for us. Somewhere along the way, we stop feeling our own desperation or thinking or remembering our own desperation and our sinfulness for Jesus on the cross for our sins. Is it because our theology changed? Is it because our theology and doctrine about the gospel changed? It's likely our self-ology changed. We think highly of ourselves and therefore the sound of Jesus' name has become a broken, muted bell in our ears. 
Why spend so much time on this? Why utterly belabor ten observations on self-righteousness? And the moment that Job is giving his final defense, I hold fast my righteousness as God lives. Friends, it could have easily been 20. It could have easily been 50. But aside from our culture adding fuel to the fire of individualism and lack of introspectiveness, God puts it this way in Jeremiah 17, 9-10, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Because what a shame to be sifted, to be shown to stand before the Lord God on this day and tomorrow and in your final day on this earth and be deceived in saying, I hold fast my righteousness only to feel your own righteousness sift through your hands like sand. Or to go grasping for righteousness that that you could cling to, that you could hold fast to and discover it's a shadow. It's not even there. Mostly because we can't say what Job can say. Job's final word is, I hold fast to my righteousness. And others in the Bible, including Ezekiel And James, remember him as righteous and steadfast. But I think through the book of of Job, his righteousness is limited to this, that Job's unrighteousness did not earn that suffering that he was given. So it is right for Job to say that he holds fast to his righteousness in that sense. But the whole book of Job is pointing to the fact that that we cannot make that claim and that Jesus alone, the innocent, suffering Son of God, is the only man in history and the history of all manhood to truly be able to say in full holiness, in full righteousness, in full blamelessness before God Himself to say, I hold fast to my own righteousness. He, Jesus Christ, and His hope and His righteousness is our hope. Michael Reeves in his book Rejoicing in Christ walks through all the aspects of Jesus Christ. This has been one of the most encouraging books for me to read a few times over the years. It's just a book gushing about Jesus on every page. Reeves describes Jesus in saying that Jesus is generous and genial, firm and resolute. He's always surprising, loving but not soppy. His insight unsettled people and his kindness won them. Indeed, he was a man of extraordinary and extraordinarily appealing contrast. You simply couldn't make him up. For if you'd make him only one or the other, he was red-blooded and human but not rough, pure but never dull, Serious with sunbeams of wit, sharper than cut glass, he outraged all comers, but he never for the, but never for the sake of the win. He knew no failings in himself, yet was transparently humble. He made the grandest claims of himself, yet without a whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire, called Herod a fox, the Pharisees pimped up corpses. And yet never do you doubt his love as you read his life. With a huge heart, he hated evil. He felt for the needy. He loved God and he loved people. You look at him. You look at him and you have to say, here is a man, truly alive, unwithered in any way, far more vital 
and vigorous, far more full and complete, far more human than any other. Jesus was tested by hunger and poverty. He was tempted with worldly safety. He was provoked, prosecuted, persecuted. He was reviled. He was ridiculed. This is what makes Jesus the one man who can mediate between God and every other man. That despite every suffering that he endured, despite being beaten and spat upon, despite being hungry in the desert for 40 days, despite being lied about, despite being misunderstood, despite being abandoned by his friends, despite everything that happened to him, Jesus was and is a righteous man. And he can hold fast to his righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 talks about if that is the case, then Jesus is the only one who can mediate between us and God in matters of righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. I mean, can you even can you imagine those words? Can you, can you get the gravity of those three? Let me do the math right. Three words, yet without sin. I don't think we can comprehend. Not just that he looked good. No, not, not just that he fooled everyone. Not that he did some religious things, made everyone think that he was righteous. He, he, he never looked upon a woman the wrong way. He never thought the wrong thought. I can't wake up and get to the bathroom without thinking the wrong thought most days. Jesus never fell into any of the traps of self-righteousness. Not one. All of his righteousness was determined by God and his holiness and his faithfulness. While he was being crucified, the man was forgiving. Our hope in life and death and eternity is that when Jesus stands before God the Father in the courtroom of heaven, Jesus can say with no reproach in his heart and no twisted face from God the Father, as God lives... I hold fast to my righteousness. And our hope is that he'll look to the church and say, they are with me. So what can we say? What can be our hope and encouragement this week? What can be our example this week? If it doesn't fit, you must have quit. I know I messed up, but they. At least I'm not as bad as. It can only be this. I Hold fast to the righteousness of Christ. I hold fast to the righteousness of Christ as God lives and Jesus has raised from the dead, paying the penalty for our sins. I hold fast to the righteousness of Christ. Friends, the way you do that is by faith. Holding fast to the righteousness of Christ is not just doing certain things first, but believing, but by faith believing that Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous and that He who knew no sin, as we read very first thing this morning, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Put your faith in Christ for righteousness. Trust that He is without sin, that we are with sin, that He was crucified for you and that raising from the dead... He now stands in your place before God, holding fast to His righteousness on your behalf. The high priest who knows our temptations, yet without sin. When Christ is your righteousness, you won't be fooled by wealth or disturbed by suffering. 
your righteousness is firmly in Christ. When Christ is your righteousness, there's no need to attack your spouse who accuses you. Your, your children are probably at least a little right when they say that you might be wrong. Listen to them. There's no need to make yourself the victim of your boss's abuse. Not necessarily not necessary to be anxiously weighing all of your good and your bad deeds. Christ is your righteousness. There's no need to hide from your sin. Christ is your righteousness. We're all aware that you have sinned against man and God. You need not be too self-defensive in your conversations. Christ is your righteousness on the cross for you. Whether it's on your tombstone, whether it's in your heart, make it in your prayer. Make it your last final defense in every conversation that you have with anyone who has anything to say about you, including Satan, including God when he comes to search your heart and your works as a judge. Make it your last and final defense. I cling to the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day and for your word. And pray that if there's anything spoken out of place by a man, that you would put it in its right place by a spirit, by your spirit. And pray that what we have heard will come home and sit in our hearts and our minds weeks and years to come. When we think about Job, when we think about our suffering, think about what we deserve. We'll remember our own unrighteousness and we'll remember Christ's righteousness. I pray, Father, this week as we go out to relate to spouses, to bosses, to friends, to church members, to our children, and as children to our parents and to our siblings, to people on the internet. But when it comes to our righteousness, whether we're right or wrong, we'll cling first to the righteousness of Christ. We'll be open, we'll be vulnerable, we'll be gentle, eager to be corrected. Eager to show by our lives and by our humility that Jesus is our righteousness. Take just a moment, if you would, and pray. Reflect on today's singing, the Word. Prepare your hearts to go and be ministers of the Word in your lives this week. Thank you, Father, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, his righteousness. Though he knew no sin, he was crucified for us. Help us to love this and rejoice in this. And by it, live in righteousness ourselves. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.